Amen and amen. Pray that that is all of our confession, not I, but Christ in me. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday and wanted to do something in conjunction to that. So perhaps a, a strange place to go might seem at first anyway, and that is we're going to be just kind of taking a quick tour through the book of Nehemiah this morning. So we're going to read chapter 1, and, uh, and then we'll pray for the Lord's illumination. So Nehemiah chapter 1, it's a rather long passage, so I'll just read it as you follow along, either in your copy of the Word of God or from the screen. And so the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin, Sons of Israel, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them. Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to call, cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So, Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let us pray together. Our Father, echoing the words of this prayer, I pray that you would make your words successful today. I pray that you would give us things to think about I pray that you would edify us. I pray that you would bring us to a, a greater understanding of how to engage our culture. Lord, everybody talks about the culture wars and, and everybody's got their own ideas of how to fight it. But Lord, the truth is we've always been in a war. That didn't start in the 80s. It didn't start in the 90s or 2000s. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And the first person we are at war against is you. 
So first of all, Father, I pray that you would forgive us, your people, who are called by your name. Let us humble ourselves and pray that you might heal us. And Father, I pray as we take your word to a lost and dying world, we, we would understand that while, yes, there are common grace, wisdom, and truths that if we will adapt as your culture, we will, we will improve and, and we will see a better day. But at the same time, Lord, the only hope of redemption in our nation is Jesus Christ and the gospel. So, Father, help us to operate under both truths, not to become so politically inclined that we forget the gospel and and think that civic religion is our hope. Lord, not to become so gospel-oriented that we ignore the issues of our day and, and we don't speak your wisdom and your truth into them. With both truth, yes, but most of all with love and compassion, just as Christ did. Lord, I pray as we can look at how Nehemiah engaged his people, I pray that you would teach us to engage the ones that you've put in our time, in this place, in this hour. Lord, we're not living in the 1950s anymore. We're not living in the 1800s anymore. We're not even living in the 20th century anymore. So Lord, help us to discover the universal truths that we must maintain to be faithful to you, but in a way that you will bless, Lord, your way, your will, your way is the only way that we can do things. It is in your name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated, and as you're turning to Nehemiah again, as I, as I said, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And um, I don't do this every year. I think I did it last year. I, I, I generally try to say something about it about once every other year or so. Because in all honesty, in, in this group at Calvary Baptist Church, we are, we are kind of preaching to the choir here when we talk about the sanctity of life, when we talk about the, uh, the wrongness of uh, abortion, which is what this Sunday kind of revolves around. Uh, I think there are other issues other than abortion that uh, need to be addressed, even issues in our heart. You know, uh, it's, it's a shame oftentimes that the very ones who are so dead set against abortion and so vocal about how vile and evil abortion are, are the same ones who will complain about children being in their church. You know, it's just, uh, it's kind of comes from the same attitude. It comes from the same idea. Children should be seen and not heard and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so uh, we value children. Jesus says, let the children come to me. You cannot love Jesus and hate children. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And so uh, we, we love children in our church. We love their mess. We love their loudness. Uh, we love all of that. And so we're so thankful that God has seen fit to, to bring an influx of children in our church. We don't really see them right now because of COVID, but uh, isn't it so great every Sunday when we see that big crowd kind of leave to go to children's church? I miss that, don't you? Amen. I hope you do. That, that didn't sound very convincing, but, I, but I, I hope you do. Amen? Remember what we said about amen last week? Okay, so, all right. So, but we're looking at Nehemiah this morning and historically, now, now obviously not in your Bible, but historically, Nehemiah is actually chronologically the last historical book in the Bible. Uh, 
Uh, we think that um, the king, but one of the reasons why he is so, it's kind of hard to place Esther, but uh, we think one of the reasons why this king was so predisposed to Nehemiah is perhaps because he knew Esther and he knew about that whole situation that went on in the book of Esther. So it's a little hard to be dogmatic about that. But uh, we know historically, Nehemiah is toward the end. Let's just say it that way. Uh, and actually, you may not know this, but in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. So when you read Nehemiah, you really need to read it with, with Ezra because the two books uh, go together. They are, they are actually the same book, kind of like First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings and those things. And so the question is here, Nehemiah is lifted up as this wonderful example of leadership, and, and he was. He, he built a wall in 70 days. I mean, that was really incredible, especially during this time. He, he, oftentimes when you'll hear sermons from Nehemiah, they're often in the context of how to lead your people and how to engage your people and how to lead the church into doing great things for the Lord. And that is certainly appropriate, and that is certainly good. But what I have always been fascinated with Nehemiah is how he engaged his culture. And I think what we see here are some truths that if we will keep these truths in mind, if we will operate under these principles, I think we will have a, a, a better way of engaging the culture than perhaps we have in the past. You know, it's, there's a couple of issues in our nation today, uh, kind of hot button political issues, abortion, uh, homosexuality, and, and those rights and all of those things. There's oftentimes that we get so uh, involved in fighting the issue that we forget to minister to the people who are trapped in the sin, that we forget to reach out to the people who have sinned in these areas or who are struggling with these sins or who are tempted by these sins. We need to speak with absolute truth, yes, but we also need to speak with compassion. We also need to speak with love. And you've heard me say this oftentimes, when you get in an airplane, would you rather have the left wing or the right wing? Well, you, you, you want both, right? That's the only way the plane flies. And beloved, the only way the church goes forward is if we speak with truth and love, if we offer truth and compassion, just as Jesus did. And so we're just gonna survey the book of Nehemiah, say a few things about it this morning, and, um, and just look at the way that he engaged his culture, and perhaps maybe there's some interesting things for us here to consider. So it, beginning, his story really begins in chapter two as he confronts the king, and we see here that we're going to see Nehemiah was, was successful in, in quite a few things. And I want you to notice here, it's things that we want to be successful in today. Number one, he, he was successful politically. Uh, look at chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. We won't, we won't read the whole uh, verses, but came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and the wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad as though you are sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I want to stop right there for a minute. Nehemiah, as, you, as many of you know, but maybe some of you don't, Nehemiah uh, says that he was cupbearer to the king. And during this day, I want you to understand that this is more than just kind of a butler 
or a, or a servant or even a guinea pig for that matter, which all of those things kind of apply. Uh, what happened was, was that a cupbearer to the king was someone who would taste the king's food and drink, his, take a sip of his wine before the king would take it just in case somebody had decided to poison his food or to poison his drink. Now, you think your job stinks. That, that's not a job that I would want personally. But this is, what, this is what Nehemiah did. And because this was such a trusted position, uh, the king and the cupbearer were often very close. In fact, oftentimes the cupbearer would, would have more of a, a voice in the king's ear than even his most trusted advisor's. Uh, only the most trusted person could be in this position because after all, if you don't have integrity in this position, then the king, is, his life is in mortal danger. And so Nehemiah and the king were very close. In fact, close enough to where the king looked at him and he understood that Nehemiah was in distress. And by the way, in this day and time, that was dangerous because it was an honor to serve the king. And if you came before the presence of the king and you were gloomy and you were sad, the king took that to be a personal insult. It was a, it was a joy to serve the king. Today, we would refer to that as yes men. And that's exactly what the king expected. We're yes men. But Nehemiah was upset and he knew that this was a, a serious situation when the, when the king had noticed that he was upset, even though, even though Nehemiah was trying as hard as he could, he had not been sad in the presence of the king. He was trying as hard as he could to hide it. The king saw it. And I want you to notice that the king knew his character. The king knew him well enough to know he saw his character. And not only this, but in verse three, Nehemiah shows a, a genuine respect for the king. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and the gates have been consumed by fire? Notice Nehemiah doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to, to do anything. In fact, he shows the king the utmost respect. He had great fear and respect for the authority of the king. And the king saw his sincerity in verse two. He understood that this sadness, this gloominess in your heart that I see, this can be nothing but sickness of the heart. You ever been so grieved that it just feels like you're physically sick? And this is sickness of the heart. Nehemiah was genuinely heartbroken over the condition of Jerusalem. He was genuinely, he saw nothing but a threat upon the very history and upon the very culture of his people. This was a very serious situation. It was, it was dire. They were in dire need. You know, do we get, you know, oftentimes when I talk to people who are secular, when I talk to people in positions and, and out in the world and I, I have these kinds of conversations, you know, so often what they think is that Christians are mad at them. And because Christians are mad at them, there's no reason for them to come to our place. You just stay between your four walls. We'll stay out here and we'll enjoy two separate worlds. That's how the most seculars kind of think about it. And you can say whatever you want to in your four walls, but if you come out here, then you better play by our rules. 
because they think that the culture, because they think that we are mad at the culture. We want the culture to go to hell. We want the culture to be destroyed. We want to do all this stuff. And unfortunately, with far too many Christians and the way they talk and the way they preach, fact of the matter is, is that they're not mistaken. They're not mistaken. And beloved, we, 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 we should expect the lost to act and do things that lost people do. That's what they do. They're lost. That's what we expect. And beloved, that ought to not make us mad. That ought to break our hearts. When that, we ought to look at the culture with the same kind of sincerity, same kind of compassion that when Christ on the Mount of Olives looked over Jerusalem and said, how many times would I have gathered you, but you would not. He wasn't mad at Jerusalem. He was heartbroken. And as we look over our Jerusalem, as we look over our nation, as we look over our country, as we look over our uh, loved ones and we see their lives wrecked by sin, beloved, is there a righteous anger there? Yes, but more than that, there is a breaking of the heart. There's mourning. Because this is the mess that sin has done. These are the lives that sin has destroyed. And you heard in, in Nehemiah's prayer in, verse, in chapter one where he prayed, Lord, this is our sin that brought this upon us. This is our doing. Nehemiah recognized that these were spiritual problems. They were not mere physical problems. And so what did he do? He appealed wisely to the king in verse five and following. When you understand the culture behind this, you understand the history, you understand that Nehemiah was actually quite politically shrewd. And he was quite wise in how he approached this. Why appeal to the father's graves, for example, the, the ancient Near East had a universal respect of ancestry. And so why does he bring up the city of my father's tombs? He, he's appealing to that universal common mentality, that universal common morality that all the ancient Near East had. There, there's, just, there's a lot of wisdom. There's a, there's a lot of ways in which Nehemiah just expertly crafts this, this uh, request to the king. He also knew that the Persians had a lenient policy toward those that he had conquered. Uh, he's appealing to the common good. A lot of wisdom here. So there's some principles that we should adopt. You know, number one, there needs to be a common respect that we have for authority. For those in authority. That is a New Testament principle. That is something that we are all commanded to do. Have respect to those who are in political authority. One of the things I like to say is we, we obey the government as far as we can. As far as we possibly can. Now, when they directly tell us to disobey God, we need to obey God rather than men. But so far as their commands do not conflict with the word of God, we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and we render unto God what is God's. But even when we do, we do it with respect. You know, when the three sons, when the three uh, uh, brothers or children of Israel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and uh, Abednego, when, 
when they disobeyed, uh, they, when they disobeyed the king, they still did it with the utmost respect. Even in their disobedience, even when Daniel disobeyed uh, the king, he did so with the utmost respect. And so even in our disobedience, there needs to be a respect because we know all authority is placed there by God. Secondly, we need to show genuine concern. Genuine concern. Beloved, are you more mad about our Christian nation being taken away? Or are you more mad about the wreckage that sin is doing in people's lives? I mean, which one makes you more upset? Which one is it that breaks us more when we see people ravaged by sin? Are you more upset when a pastor endorses a candidate of a opposing political party? Or are you more upset when a pastor gets up here and teaches false doctrine? You know, which one? And by the way, I would never endorse a political party. That's not what the pulpit's for. But if I did, which one would you be more mad at? Which one would upset us more? The scriptures command us to be respectful and obedient as long as we can. And we need to be truly heartbroken over the ailments of our culture. And finally, we need to demonstrate the ways that God's ways, yes, in a common grace, are good, generally good for our society. They are good. Righteousness really does exalt a nation. It really does. It works. And we need to appeal to the common good. Let me just give you an example. Roe v. Wade was, uh, what year was that? Was it 73? Okay. How many years has that been? A lot. Okay. (laughs) So, been a lot of years, right? How many children have we lost in those years? How many of those children could have been doctors today helping us with the coronavirus? How many of those children today could have been educators Could have been teachers, could have been people solving problems, could have been working on cancer, could have been working on all sorts of things. The workforce, the economy, you talk about the economy slipping, why? Because we have less children going into the workforce, that's why. We have twice as many baby boomers going into retirement as we do children going into the workforce. That's a problem, a problem created by us. Where are they? They're dead. We've aborted them. And so, I mean, just in one way that following God is for the common good. It's for the common grace of society. Perhaps cancer could have been cured by now. Nehemiah did all these things. He had all these attitudes and he convinced the king. So he was successful politically. He was also successful socially. Chapter two, verse 11, on down through six, 19. We won't follow all this, but he didn't just win over the king. He expertly wind, won, wind, now just say that. Uh, maybe some of these kids could have taught me grammar too, but um, he, uh, he didn't just win over the king. He also won over the, the people, 
He also won over the people. How do you do that? Well, let's just kind of start in verse, uh, in chapter two, verse 17. Look what happens here. He says to him, you see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I I want you to notice what he did is that he started off by seeking to personally understand the problem. Uh, you remember in verses um, in verses eleven through uh, beginning in verse eleven through this time he went out at night and he went around and he inspected all of the damage he he sought to get a personal acquaintance with the issue of the day he he sought to, he did his own personal research you might say he sought to understand before he spoke you know the old adage what does it say God gave you two ears and one mouth so you should what. You should listen as twice as much as you talk, right? And so Nehemiah sought to understand this. He sought to, he sought to have a personal understanding. He didn't come uh, to this just by the word of a third party. He surveyed the damage, saw for himself what it was going to take. He came acquainted with it firsthand, did his homework. And as a result, when he came before the people, he wasn't just firing off half-loaded. He wasn't a few fries of a Happy Meal is what I like to say. He, was, he, had a, he had a thorough understanding of what needed to be done. And he understood exactly what they needed to heal. And listen, understand this, that when you do that, it not only builds knowledge that you can speak accordingly, but it builds conviction. The more you seek to understand it, the more you get a fire in your bones for it. And the more you begin to speak out on it, the more you begin to be courageous on it. Uh, Passion creates courage, doesn't it? And the the more courage we want, the more we'll need to understand the issues that they actually are. And not only this, it enabled him to level with the people. Listen, he didn't sugarcoat the issue. He told him, he said, Jerusalem, we need to stop being a reproach in among the nations. We are God's people. We are better than this. God called us to be better than this. We must not be a reproach anymore. He didn't sugarcoat it. He leveled with them. He told them exactly. He convinced them that there was a problem and he appealed to their sense of urgency. And you see that it worked and He gave them a better way. We see that throughout these chapters, they're working and they're working hard. Sometimes, literally, they have a tool in one hand and a sword in the other hand. I mean, they're facing off all of these threats and all of these different things that are going on. It's an amazing example of of how we can show our culture that, yes, there are real problems, there are real issues, but yes, the gospel, the biblical answers are better than what the world comes up with. Listen, you need to understand, there are real family issues, there are real issues that are driving the abortion industry. And we need to be honest about those. Okay, we can't just give a young lady who's in trouble, we can't just convince her to to save her baby and then give her a handshake and say, okay, good luck. We can't do that. There are real issues that are driving these things and we need to be just as honest about them, just as truthful and just as compassionate about those issues as we are about the abortion issue. There are broken families. There, are, there is sin. There is corruption. There is temptation. We need to be, yes, truthful, but also compassionate. 
also compassionate. We can't just keep trying to do away with the symptoms. We need to offer solutions to the issues that are driving those symptoms. Family breakdowns, violence, homosexuality, gangs, so many other things are just the symptoms. The real issues are the hearts. The real issues, there, there, are, there are things that are driving these things and we've got to be honest about them. Biblical solutions are better. We can offer a compelling vision of how our solutions will lead to the greater good. Biblical wisdom does lead to the greater good, even in a common grace way. Jeremiah chapter 29 When Jeremiah is preaching to the people of Israel and saying, what should we do? What should you do when you're in Babylon? What should you do when you're in captivity? Build your houses. Go to work. Work for the good of the city. For in their welfare, you will find your welfare. Beloved, we're not living in a shining hill, a shining light on a hill. We are living in Babylon. And while, yes, we speak the truth courageously and in love, we do so in a way for the good of the city. We work for the good of others. We can do this. Nehemiah did. He was able to inspire them and motivate them to work together and get the job done, working day and night. Can too. But I want you to notice something. In 519... Nehemiah is looking at all this that is going on. He says in verse 19, remember me, oh my God, for good, according to all I've done for this people. He starts to look around. The poor are still being oppressed right under his nose with all the success he finds this. It's like, wait a minute, there's something under the surface that's wrong here. We're starting to see that underneath all his success, there is something that's bothering him. Something that's bothering him. And he prays this prayer, but then he carries on. And so we see that he was successful politically. We see he was successful socially. But he was also successful culturally. He carries on. They built the wall in 52 days in chapter 6, verse 15. 52 days, can you believe that? It wasn't a great wall, but it was functional. It worked. That's all that matters, right? So it's not like it was very ornate or anything like that, but it, it was a functional wall. It, it, it worked. It was just, it wasn't, he's now, and he's not just rebuilding a wall. He's restoring the morale. He's restoring the culture of the people. And once the wall is finished, he begins to tackle other things. And, and you'll notice in, in chapter 7, uh, our, our, all of our favorite parts of the scripture, we start to see list of names. Now, I know many of you did your devotionals out of the chronologies and list of names this week, didn't you? Aren't those just an edifying portion of scripture? <laughs> Uh, but you need to understand that in their day, this is important. And, and for our purposes, I want you to see that not only did he build the wall, but culturally he started with the families. 
He started with rebuilding the families, the the history and the culture and traditions of the people. He arranges them according to their tribe and family organizations. And in doing so, he's restoring their customs. He's restoring their morale. In chapter 8, verse 8, they reestablish biblical worship. He reminds them of their responsibilities under the old covenant. He restores their sense of responsibility to God. You know, you could say he put prayer back in the public square. Right? He did that. In fact, history tells us that Israel, after this time, never went back into idolatry again, at least not the idolatry of the nations. Now, they were idolaters, but... They were so in in less physical ways. Fact of the matter is they never went back into serving wooden gods. He restored all that. Restored family, restored a sense of national identity and pride. He brought back their customs all in all. Nehemiah was a great success. And it is for these reasons that Nehemiah is considered one Uh, of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. You will will find books, you know, on Nehemiah's leadership and they analyze it and they they talk about how all of these things can be brought into today's world. And, And I commend that to you. That is good. I could probably, I could use a lot of that myself. I'm uh, you know, it's just, it's all of the things that he did were, were incredible and the success that he saw was amazing. And, and all of this is, is solemnized in, in chapter 12 where they dedicate the wall and everything is good and the story is over, right? Well, actually, no, it's not right. You see, because we, we began to see in chapter five that there was something under the surface, something that kept driving Nehemiah back to prayer over and over and over again, saying, Lord, remember me, remember me, remember me. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah leaves. The work is done. Israel has changed. The culture is transformed, or so it seems. But now what we began to saw under the surface, just a hint of in chapter five, verse 19, is now gonna come into full view. Because the second Nehemiah leaves, what happens? They went right back to their sin. Immediately the people go back to their sin. The priesthood is being sold to the highest bidder, The people immediately stopped what they were doing and went back to their homes, abandoning Jerusalem. They began ignoring the law. They began profaning the Sabbath. In a sense, all the things that Nehemiah did for the people were undone. In fact, according to one commentator, in a sense, Nehemiah is writing this book not to point us to his success, but to point us to his failure. Nehemiah was successfully politically, he was successfully socially, he was successfully culturally. But in the end, he was a failure. People went right back to their sin. And all the things that Nehemiah accomplished politically, socially, and culturally, in the end, they were not enough. 
They brought about some temporary solutions, yes. But the people's hearts were not changed. And all they did was find new ways to sin inside a brand new wall. That's all that happened. He comes back and finds all these problems in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, four or five times, Nehemiah is seeing all this and saying, remember me, O Lord. Remember me, O Lord. I tried. I, after I've done all this, Lord, after Nehemiah has had all of this success, after he's done all of these accomplishments, all he can do is raise his arms to the Lord and ask for mercy. Because everything he accomplished was not enough. Listen, we, we can work for all these things. Politics, culture, family. We should work for these things. Yes, we should. We ought to be right in the middle of the marketplace of ideas, expressing biblical truths and addressing these issues. But at the end of the day, politics, culture, Society, none of those things will change the heart of one single person. None of Nehemiah's reforms changed their hearts. They were still sinners. And instead of sinning with no wall, now they're sinning with a wall. Nothing changed. And in in effect, historically, historically and chronologically, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 31, the book ends with, remember me, oh my God, for my good. After everything is said and done, Nehemiah, all he can do is ask God for mercy. Like the thief on the cross, remember me. Remember me. When you enter your kingdom, remember me. That's all he's got. Here's the great news. Even though the Old Testament chronologically ends with that prayer, the New Testament begins with the answer that God has remembered us. He came and he died on the cross for our sins and he redeemed us so that we can have new hearts. We can change culture. We can change the schools. We can We can bring hope to families. We can do all those things. But ultimately, the only hope is found in Jesus Christ. And we must not confuse a civic moralism with biblical Christianity. We must never confuse those things. We must be strong and understand that it is the gospel that changes lives. Voting values, as much as we should, I'm not, de- I'm not denying that we should, but voting values will not change the heart of a single person. Only Jesus Christ will. And that's what Nehemiah is here to teach us today that you can have the best leadership in the world. You can build the biggest buildings. You can have a huge crowd. Anyone can build a crowd, but only Christ can build a church. And Christ has said that upon this rock, upon the confession of Jesus Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not Prevail against it. Presidents come and go. Political parties come and go. Nations come and go. But the words and the truths of Jesus Christ are true for eternity. 
on engaging the culture. We must not lose the gospel. You know, there's a movie that came out a few years ago, uh, and they did a free showing. It was an anti-abortion film, and they did a free showing, and they invited all the churches to come. I, I did not endorse it, and I, I didn't want us to go see it, so I didn't really say anything about it, mainly because it was rated R, and I, don't, I, don't, I didn't want to, I wasn't sure what all was going to be in it. You know, I took a little heat for that, and uh, some people were very upset that I didn't say anything to our church about it. I finally got a chance to watch the film. Um, I think it was on Netflix or something like that. I finally got a chance to watch it. And, uh, and yeah, it was, a, it was a good anti-abortion film. But I remember one scene where the main character is, is come to her senses. She's come to understand what all she's done. And she's talking to her Christian husband. And she says, uh, uh, how can God forgive me for everything I've done? And you know what that Christian husband said? Because he's God, that's what he does. That's it. That's the closest they got to the gospel in that film. And beloved, yes, we need to stand against the sin of the culture, but not at the expense of the gospel. And I'm glad that I did not endorse that film because I don't want to give the mistaken impression that you can be saved, that you can be saved and go to heaven because you didn't have an abortion. I don't want to give that message. I want to give the message that the only way that we can know Christ, that we can have the security of heaven, that we can have eternal life is by trusting in the only source of that salvation, which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. And that doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what social group you belong to. It doesn't matter what political party you belong to. It doesn't matter who your president is. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sins and trust in his work alone for salvation, beloved, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And we must always hang on to that because that's the only real thing that changes us. So engage our culture, yes. Seek the common good, yes. But we can never do it at the expense of the gospel. We can never do that at the expense of the gospel. Stand for truth. Stand for compassion. Stand for love. And stand for Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. He is our hope. And he is our only salvation. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these truths, Lord. We thank you that you are such a merciful God. And Lord, I pray that as we have looked at these things, it's so easy to get sidetracked it on the issues of our day. They are important, Lord. There has been a holocaust of, of children in our nation. Our hearts mourn for that. It breaks our hearts. And yet, Lord, we also know that there is a gospel for them. There is another way. And I pray that our anger of the sin will not overpower our compassion for the sinner. I pray that our anger for the sin will not overshadow our love, 
your love for the ones who commit these very sins. Lord, give our nation hope, not a false hope, not a hope that's only gonna last four or eight years, but a hope that'll last eternity in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who washes us clean. Lord, let us be a, a, a pillar and buttress of truth in our community, both common grace, but also the calling of your gospel to people who are lost and dying and are their sins. And Lord, for Christians who are caught up in, in this rat race of civic religion, who have become so enamored by issues that they're not even really preaching the gospel anymore. Lord, I pray that you'll bring us back, that you'll bring us to a true revival, not of moralism, not of temperance, but of the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. We pray all of this in your precious and holy name so that we will be holy, that we will be righteous according to your, your standards. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this course.